a boring is just a couple inches in diameter, but it gives you a pretty good snapshot of, of what's under, you know, what's under the ground at the site. So the more borings, the clearer the picture is. But like you were saying, you could take a boring and, you know, be in limestone 10 feet deep. And then on the other side of the site where there wasn't borings, it could be 50 feet deep. Welcome to the Placemaking Podcast. Podcast. The show geared at helping real estate developers learn and understand important aspects of the development process while improving communities one at a time. Each week, we'll discuss major facets of the real estate development process with industry professionals. Now, here's your host, Matthew Lowe's. Hello and welcome, everyone. Thank you for joining the show. This is going to be a fun one. Tim is a good friend of mine and office manager at ECS Southwest here in Fort Worth, Texas. Tim has been successfully managing projects with ECS for about six years now. His insights into managing successful materials testing projects come from a strong military background. The firm he works with, ECS Southwest, is a leader in geotechnical, construction materials, environmental, and facilities engineering. With five offices and testing facilities spread across the Mid-Atlantic, Midwest, Southeast, and Southwest. ECS is currently ranked as number 72 in Engineering News Records Top 500 Design Firms. In this episode, we're going to discuss the role of a geotechnical and materials testing firm on your project, what type of tests are typically performed by these types of firms, and why are they important for ground-up developments. So as always, if you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and share with your friends. There will be more exciting conversations on the show to come. So, without further ado... Let's start the show. Hey, welcome to the show, Tim. Hey, Matt. Good to talk to you. Glad to have you on here. Uh, given a brief introduction before this and, and kind of given a little background, but why don't you uh, tell us a little bit more about yourself and, and uh, ECS Southwest? All right. Well, I've got about six years of experience in construction materials testing, um, all with ECS. I started out as a field technician. I worked my way up into the office. Prior to working at ECS, I was in the U.S. Army field artillery for about five years. Uh, the Army taught me you know, discipline, leadership skills, familiarity with uh, field manuals and technical manuals. And those all translated well to the understanding ASTMs and, and project specifications. Mm-hmm. ECS is currently ranked number 72 on the ENR 500 overall top design firms. Uh, we've got about 1,800 employees and 65 offices on the United States, and we've been around for 31 years. Wow. So I want to I wanna come back to you real quick, because that was really brief, and it was to the point, and it was very Army, and I liked it. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I guess, did you have any interest in... in doing what you're doing now prior to joining the army or while you got, was it something that came about while you were in the army or? No, it actually, I didn't know much about it when I started. Um, okay. When I started at ECS, I, I really didn't know much, you know, I didn't know that people needed to hire third party inspectors or geotechnical engineers or anything 
of that nature. Uh, so I just started started uh, at the very ground level, bottom, not knowing anything, and learned everything on the job. Gotcha, gotcha. So you didn't know much about it. So how did you how did you find the job? One of my friends was an environmental scientist working for ECS in our environmental department, and he suggested that uh, that I apply as a as a field technician there, looking for looking for good people, and uh, so I applied and been here ever since. So what's what's your role look like right now? So right now I'm still I'm working in the Fort Worth office of ECS. I'm still a project manager for uh, construction materials testing projects. And I'm also uh, responsible for the overall profit and loss of the office, uh, managing all the personnel, keeping staffing levels up, and uh, business development marketing. ECS is fairly, fairly large company. Uh, I'm sure. How big is the uh, Fort Worth office? The Fort Worth office is hovering around 20 people. Uh, I think okay. there's 21 people on the last payroll, and we're looking to hire another four or five here in the next month or two. And how many of those are, are field technicians? Field tech, that's 15 field technicians. Okay. So primarily field technicians. Yes. And how far do y'all travel for ECS, your Southwest here? Well, in the Fort Worth office, we're servicing projects as far away as Wichita Falls to the north and Meridian in the south. Uh, okay. typically, typically, it stays within about a 45-mile radius, but there's a few outliers, like the ones I mentioned, where, where they're a couple hundred miles. Gotcha. So we'll kind of transition here into the role of geotechnical engineers and inspectors on a typical ground-up development. Just ground level, what are geotechnical engineers responsible for and, and field technicians that basically are, are managing right now? All right. So uh, geotechnical engineers use principles of soil mechanics and rock mechanics to investigate subsurface conditions uh, and the underlying ge geology of site. They're responsible for designing earthwork recommendations, suitable foundation designs, pavement design, and evaluating the stability of, of slope. Technicians on site during the, the construction phase are the eyes and ears of the geotechnical engineer. So they'll, they'll help to do the testing of the soil, observation of the foundations, and just test and document that everything's being done in, in accordance with the report and project plans and specifications. Gotcha. And, and you're, you handle more of the uh, materials testing. So how's that important? And why is that something that's necessary for, for a ground-up development? Very important because to have a third-party independent inspector on site to make sure that nobody's trying to cut corners. Because a lot of people would be financially incentivized to, to cut corners, get the job done faster and cheaper, but not necessarily done correctly. And at the end of the day, it's not a quality product. The owner's not getting what he's paying for. And in some situations, it's a life safety concern. Without going into too much detail, uh, what, what kind of things have you seen in the past that, I guess, we, you mentioned cut corners. What, what does that look like? Like sometimes if you're doing drilled piers, the, uh, the contractor will try to not get the, the correct depth of piers, the, the incorrect bearing material. 
And if, if you do that, the building will inevitably fail. Right. Uh, That's pretty serious. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Others is, you know, if there's bad concrete on site, um, they're, they've only got 90 minutes to place concrete typically, uh, from the time it's batched to the time it's placed. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if the concrete's already on site, sometimes the contractor, you know, he's already paid for it. He wants to to place it, even though it may not be good anymore. It it could already be curing and, and things of that nature, not in a plastic state. Right. How often do you see that? I uh, guess your your field technicians. How often? It's not uncommon. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah it's uh, not uncommon at all. Really, need can't emphasize the importance of enough of uh, having a qualified third party testing lab on site. So, pure depth, which here in Texas and and the location we're in, peers are pretty common. So. Not having that specified depth is is pretty crucial, uh, right? Yeah, and also in North Texas, as you may be aware, we have a lot of expansive soils. Mm-hmm. Uh, so having a testing lab on site to monitor the mixing uniformity of the uh, of the soil while they're placing it. If we're not on site, you know, you you'll turn your head and they'll have five feet of soil on the ground. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, so it's all about making sure the owner, the developer, is getting quality product and that the project is being constructed in accordance with plans and specifications. Gotcha. So you said you're a third party. So typically, I assume the owner hires you rather than the contractor. That is correct. So do do contractors typically do any testing of their own or do they just lean on you guys for testing? On more like heavy civil projects, so the contractor have their own testing lab and the owner will have their own. We've done some work at the airports where that's the case and other heavy civil sites. But on most private developments, you, you don't see that. Gotcha. I guess briefly, just kind of discuss what the process, we'll, we'll go into the two parts here. Uh, just a quick overview of, of how they would test an existing soil site, existing site for for soils and then the second part let's let's kind of dive in maybe how how they would test certain materials during a a construction project so our engineers would review the regional geology of of the site go in and excavate test pits and take soil borings they'll perform in situ testing on the soil and rock to determine the compressive strength We'll take samples back to the laboratory where we run a variety of, of laboratory tests, including swell tests. So we add water to the soil to see what the swell potential is, run Atterberg limit tests to determine what moisture contents the soils will act, solid, liquid, and plastic, mm-hmm. uh, natural moisture contents, uh, just to you know see where it's at now and help determine what, what the swell potential is. I'll also evaluate groundwater and, and seismology of sites. Quite quite a range. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's there's a there's a lot to go go into it, and that's things that you you can't you know determine just by looking at sites. You really have to get the borings and look at the data, run run the calcs. Right, and most geotechs like to put in a disclaimer that these are only point tests. You know, the the site could vary in between certain borings you just don't know until you get in there but uh these geotech reports are are valuable 
in that at least you'll have a heads up, you know, most times. Right, yeah. A boring is just a couple inches in diameter, but it gives you a pretty good snapshot of, of what's under, you know, what's under the ground at the site. So the more borings, the clearer the picture is. But like you were saying, you could take a boring and, you know, be in limestone 10 feet deep. And then on the other side of the site where there wasn't borings, it could be 50 feet deep. Yeah. Or you could run into a sinkhole or something else fun like that. that <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> in between borings. So, yeah, that, that's interesting. What does that look like on site? What kind of, you know, we talked about borings, but what does that look like, the actual testing look like? Uh, well, it's getting drill rig out to the site, and they'll, they'll push down the hollow tubes and uh, it just extract cylinders of soil uh, going down, you know, various steps, uh, but easily down down to the to the ground rock and then into the ground rock. Gotcha. Like you said, you're testing for, you know, all sorts of things, strength. You might find the water table. You might not at that uh, current location. You know, there's plasticity there's a multitude of things that ultimately affect your your design for structural elements such as your like i said pavement design and uh, foundation design any good structural engineer won't give you a design unless they have a geotechnical report so <laughs> that's correct <laughs> yeah yeah so yeah and you... it, it ends up saving a lot of money on, on the design too is if you have the actual bearing capacities and the actual PVR, you know, you reduce the PVRs, you can reduce a lot of the, the size of the foundation elements. Right, right. The more information you have, the less conservative you can be. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Okay, so talked about pre-construction. Uh, I guess let's get into just a general materials testing setup for you guys for a typical ground-up maybe a smaller site construction. Okay. Yeah. So uh, during construction, the geotechnical engineers will evaluate the foundation systems, the soil conditions, and solve any unexpected problems that may arise. And as you mentioned, we provide construction materials testing and third-party inspection services. This is where we independently observe construction activities to verify compliance with the approved construction drawings and project specifications. So it started out with earthwork. We test the soil for proper moisture, compaction, observe the depth of the excavations, and make sure you know the over excavation is deep enough, and monitor for proper lift thickness and uniformity of the soil. We're also there whenever they place uh, fresh concrete, and mm -hmm. and we'll sample the the temperature, air content, slump, monitor batch replacement times. Uh, make sure that it's being consolidated, looking out for cold joints, things of that nature, just proper construction techniques. Before any concrete's placed, we observe reinforcing steel and post-tensioning tendons to make sure that those are all installed in accordance with the plans and specs. We'll do the uh, monitor stressing of the post-tensioning tendons, do masonry observations and testing, do structural steel welding inspections, uh, fireproofing, wood framing, roofing and on and on so wow from the very beginning until you know until the shell is constructed the you know framing's complete roofs up you know there, there's testing involved in all that wow 
So you're on site for the whole, uh, essentially the whole process. I mean, not finish out, but yeah, until they get to the finish outs and we'll, right. uh, no longer needed. So how how long are you on site typically? Or I guess it varies, obviously, with with what you guys are testing. But yeah, yeah, it varies from site to site, but definitely for the earthwork, definitely definitely for the concrete, and then our our wood framing and and uh, metal framing things like that are. Sometimes those are more optional services, but highly recommended. You almost always find find issues when you go out there and actually start start taking a look at it. What kind of issues are you finding with framing? We kind of talked about kind of more of the concrete mixture, but as far as framing goes, uh, it can be pretty much anything that you look at. You know, a lot of times you're missing hold downs or have the wrong size header. Uh, sometimes it can be bigger. You know big things like missing structural columns and uh, <laughs> wow <laughs> and, yeah yeah was, uh, we've seen it all we've uh, stopped a lot of major structural problems from happening but you know just being out there and observing and recording what we're seeing yeah that that brings up a good point so if you do see something on site what is the normal protocol for non-compliance if, if you see something well, so every time we go to the site, we write a daily field report, and we're in we communicate with the project superintendent on site. Uh, so we'll, you know, we'll identify any problems, see if we can get them fixed right then and there, and then we'll have a report that says everything has been corrected. Or if gotcha. it's a bigger fix uh, that takes more time, you know, we'll have a report listing the non the areas observed and the non compliant items that were identified. We'll send that the Everyone on our distribution list, uh, structural engineer will take a look at it, and uh, you know he may have uh, a solution to to fix it or just say you know correct it is in the way that the, uh, the plans and specifications show. Gotcha. Have you run into? I know you're not out in the site quite as, or out in the field quite as much, but do you run into some difficult superintendents sometimes that that don't agree? <laughs> Uh, sometimes, usually, you know, 90% of the time it, it's, uh, they're, they're pretty agreeable. You know, every, everybody's on the same team, typically trying to get the job done professionally and in the right way. But every now and then you'll, you'll have somebody that, uh, isn't as ethical as, as we'd like. <laughs> We're not going to say names. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure you see the whole gambit of contractors while out there and i'm sure you guys run into favorites and uh not so favorites <laughs> while you're out there so yeah, we kind of touched on this but you guys provide field services throughout the duration of the construction project so what is the benefit of that to the owner is it peace of mind or is there any any liability that gets kind of taken off of of somebody's plate yeah so well for one third-party inspections are required so if, if you don't have them done you're not going to get a certification of occupancy that's <laughs> so, pretty straightforward yeah okay, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah so so they are required but it and it, it's reducing the developer's liability substantially if you're you know they're, they're paying for the project to be done per the plan and specs and if the contractor is cutting corners to do it more cheaply and quickly, then it, at the end of the day, they're not getting a good product. If they don't want to pay for 
air and training admixer in the concrete, for instance. Mm-hmm. It might save them, you know, a couple hundred bucks on the project, but it's the life of the pavement's going to be reduced by 50%, and the owner is going to be stuck replacing it in 10 years. Right. So kind of into the uh, into what you discussed previously about cutting corners, but it's more of on a on a different different leaf. But what is the most surprising thing that you found performing that pre-site geotech was somewhat surprising? We sort of touched on it earlier, just how variable the sites can be. The ground rock isn't like a, a nice steady sheet. So one example is we're doing periods of the job and you'll just the variability from one period to the other, like 20 feet away from each other. The ground rock was changing by depth of 10 feet on, on wow. relatively shallow piers. You'd get about five feet on overburden on one pier and then hit, hit the ground rock. And then you'd go the next pier over and it's, you know, 12 feet until you hit the ground rock. And then go another 25 feet over and it's you know 30 feet before you hit the ground rock so So what did they do there was that just they just had to buck it up and yeah they uh, just had to go go a little bit deeper uh yeah splice the steel cages yeah everybody's a little bit surprised by you know the variability in the in the bearing strata depth another interesting find when we're drilling borings on another side is we got to one edge of the site and it's you know, about 10 feet of just trash and tires and bottles and stuff with, <laughs> with some grass on the top of it. So luckily we were able to identify that in the borings and, and give the owner a clear picture of what was underneath the, the ground in his site. Right. And in, in that case, I, I guess, you know, they probably just had to scrape that off, right? There wasn't really any other way to handle that. Yeah, not not in a under a building pad, which this right. was. Uh, <laughs> gotcha. If it was that in the landscape area, you might have been able to live with it. But they had they they had to uh, get that out of there and haul in uh, new material. So, what's been your most uh, challenging testing site? Hmm, that's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to name just one. There, there's okay. different challenges to every to every site. Doesn't have to be the most difficult, but has there been a site that has been the most unique or more unique? Maybe it had to do with a certain building design, or maybe the topography on the site, or or just the you know, the actual design of, of pavements. Yeah. Or... There's been a few few sites with accelerated schedules where. The, uh, where we'll put maturity meters in the concrete to get in situ strength readings. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so that that involves a lot of coordination, a lot of technicians. Where we'll go out and do a pre-pour observation, one that you know in the afternoon, and at midnight we're placing several hundred yards of concrete. Then the next day we've got we're out there in the morning picking up the cylinders, getting them back doing one day breaks on those, have somebody else out there reading maturity meters, stre- stressing the post tensioning tendons. So logistically, you know, m- making all those, all the wheels turn in sequence is uh, one of the, one of the more challenging jobs. And we've had that scenario on, on several. Yeah, I would imagine. <laughs> Time is money. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess you mentioned the, the meters. 
uh, in situ meters. Can you just briefly touch on those? I'm curious. Oh, yeah. So uh, maturity meters, that's the technology that's been out for, for a while now, where you'll get a, a test, a couple of test batches for, for each mix design. You'll make, make several cylinders and break them at, at different intervals with two control cylinders with the maturity meters in them. So you'll read the maturity of two control cylinders, record that, get the average of it. That's the average maturity. Then you break three cylinders at six hours, 12 hours, 18 hours, 24 hours, three days, seven days, you know, it, you know, different intervals and record the maturity, record the break data, and then you develop a curve. And then with that curve, you can interpolate at what strength, it, what maturity correlates to what strength. Gotcha. Because, yeah, like for those that aren't familiar with, with concrete curing, the uh, strength of the concrete goes up, not necessarily exponentially, but goes up quite a bit in the first 28 hours. And then after that, it starts to level off. And, and that's kind of what you're what you're looking at, right? That That's correct. Okay. Yeah. So if you can have so that'll save the contractor a lot of time for um, how fast they can stress cables how fast they can strip shoring things like that and it's a huge cost impact on on the project gotcha and construction schedule well i'm going to bring it back to one more personal question <laughs> all right <laughs> something you know uh, quite a bit about yourself so what what do you think has made you successful as a project manager there at ecs what habits what what uh, mindsets what what do you think has, has made you successful there? Trying to remind myself that at the end of the day, I'm in the customer service industry. We <laughs> all are. So trying, you know, figuring out, and every client's different, but you got to figure out what are this, what is this client's needs and how can I help them? How, how yes. can I help the project? How can I satisfy the client? You know, obviously you got to, manage budgets and and uh, be where you're supposed to be do what you're supposed to do keep it under budget get reports out quickly but then there's always always something else how does you know just figuring out what it is about e each client that that will set you apart from your competitors that's a good point and everyone is completely different so it takes a lot of skill to fine-tune that uh, intuition there uh, absolutely you never want to assume you know this is what you know the past three people wanted so you know the the, the next client might want it uh, completely different so gotcha. it's always good to to listen and not just not just assume right and i was going to ask you how, how do you go about doing that but i think you touched on it there at the end is, is listening <laughs> and uh, communication essentially right yes sir yeah it's, all comes down to communication in the end perfect well I want to thank you for taking your time out of your busy schedule, Tim. Yeah, yeah, it's been my pleasure. Perfect. Well, we'll uh, talk to you later. All right, talk to you later.